Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Luke, Han and the Princess's story didn't end with the destruction of the Death Star. It continues in The Empire Strikes Back. The next chapter in the Star Wars saga. An epic of alien worlds. And the climactic clash between good and evil. Join the further adventures of Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Lando Calrissian, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca in a spectacular new episode of the continuing Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy this summer. Welcome to the ultimate edition of our Empire Strikes Back show, combining sections of the original 2010 podcast and the 2015 commentary, along with John Williams' amazing score to create a much more in-depth and detailed study of one of my very favourite films. Our guests this time are Neil Taylor of The Kid Dog, James Batchelor of Game Burst, Alex Eading of The Plaid Hat Podcast, and a blast from the past, Mike Phillips, of the Fanboys Lunchcast. Empire, as I've said all along, is my favourite Star Wars movie for many reasons. Uh, we're about to go into, but to kick us off, I'm going to ask you guys to name as many things as possible that we all take for granted as being integral to the series as a whole, which didn't come along until this second movie. The Imperial March. That's the one at the top. <laughs> That's the one at the top of my list as well. Yes, the Imperial March. Just for those of you who've forgotten what it sounds like, it sounds like this. Yoda. 
Yep. And, and Yoda's theme, since we're since we're talking about Indeed. music, I think Yoda's theme is. I've got Yoda, well. but Yoda's themes uh, is totally relevant as well, and also a deeper understanding of the Force that comes with him. Well, as also our walkers, the- and uh, yeah, the, the walkers. Yep. One thing that occurred to me when I watched is you didn't in the first Star Wars movie, uh, the Force was used to use the Jedi mind trick or to dodge laser blasts from the training droid, but. In this movie, you see Luke pull his lightsaber from the snow, which is something we had not seen them do in Star Yeah, Wars. actually, yeah, I don't remember true. them actually using it to co- control objects. I think, doesn't Obi-Wan use it to distract people when he's uh, he's sneaking around the track? Yeah, he, he does the little oogie-boogie thing with his fingers, and yeah, that, yeah. that seems to work. But this is the first time you'd seen them move objects with the Force. It was the first time we saw the Emperor's face. Yep, the Emperor I've got mm. here. He was mentioned in Episode 4, but of course he wasn't really a character until now. The Super Star Destroyer. Yes, the Executor. The Executor. The, is it the ex- Executor? I call it the Executor, but I could see Executor. Ah, I, I call it the Executor. Executor sounds more like Donald Trump, and Executor <laughs> sounds terrifying. Oh, my sweet summer child of 2010. So let's call Executor is like, it's businesslike, but it's a thinly veiled threat. Yeah. If well, Donald what, Trump was in the Star Wars universe, he would ride around in one of those. It, uh, and he'd have an apprentice. Um, <laughs> oh, I, oh. For the purposes of this particular podcast, I'm going to call it The Executor, just because it sounds cooler. I might be wrong on that one. Anything else? Sure, there's loads, but I can't think. Of the, I only finished watching it about an hour ago. Certain Bounty Hunter? Boba Fett? I did say Bounty Hunters in general, but it got you know overruled by all the Yoda's theme talk. But Bounty Hunters in general. Yes. Except for the fact if you don't count the 2004 DVD. Indeed. We're going to say that by the time those came along, everyone was pretty much down with the Star Wars, and they knew who Boba Fett was. That The whole reason that he's in, though, the episode four, for for that little brief flash, is because everyone knows who he is and how awesome he is. I've got four more things that are very significant. Incredible stunts from the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. Think about it. In episode four, it goes forwards... And then it goes down and up. And it lists lazily, it lists to, the lazily to the left. <laughs> In this one, it's barrel rolling, it's flying around through canyons, it's phenomenal. And it becomes the best starship of all time, closely followed by Serenity and Galactica. And the Enterprise. It's probably its most amazing stunt, though, is when it when they turn and attack the Star Destroyer and oh, yeah. he buzzes the bridge like Tom Cruise in Top Gun and oh, then yeah. somehow magically attaches to the back of the bridge. I would have loved yeah. to seen that landing sequence. Indeed. And also, everyone on the back of the bridge just sort of looking out the window and going, I just, all the stars have disappeared. <laughs> this is my point. No one point. This is one of the, my things on my list of things that Go don't for make it sense. Now. It no one notices a bloody great <laughs> spaceship sitting on the back. Surely there'd be little alarms that go there off There must be point. windows. Or someone's sitting in the mess hall at the back and all you hear is ka-chung. Or when they're, designing like, the the was that? when they're designing the Star Destroyer. Sir, windows on the rear? No point. No point. We're not going to be backing up in this thing. Blind spot. I mean, we only go full. the Enterprise had been built like that, what's it like? The, um, the <laughs> Next Generation episode, Galaxy's Child, where a bloody great big slug acha- attaches itself to the back of the Enterprise. And if no there were wish- no windows, <laughs> what's going on? The power's going out. Okay, three more things. Romance between Han and Leia. Oh, yes. It was sort of there in episode four, but they were just mainly bickering. She smiles at him at the end of, in the ceremony. That's about it. And you think there might be something. But at that point, it was totally up in the air as to who she was going to get with. Are we to do um, the spoiler from the end count as well? So, okay, right. If it's... 
<laughs> they may be kids. Be fair. They may be kids. No kids who've never seen The Empire Strikes Back or any other Star Wars film apart from Episode 4 are listening to this show. It's not a spoiler. But yeah, okay, go for it. Luke, I am your father. No, I am your father. Stop <laughs> getting Star Wars wrong! I, I have to, just because it's so fun to wind you up with. Okay, right. Darth Vader's full character, brooding, scarred, murdering father. And, of course, to go with that, visually stunning lightsaber battles, because before that, we hadn't had one. Force ghosts. We hadn't uh, seen those before. Actually, no, we hadn't seen Obi-Wan before. We just no. heard him talking. Yep. And we didn't see them after Return of the Jedi. Because yeah, because Qui-Gon and all of that stuff. So much of what people consider Star Wars is, is based on this movie. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to point this out. I mentioned I wondered how long those ships were last time, the Star Destroyers. Find out they're over a kilometre long, which is about a mile. That's pretty long. Apparently in the uh, odd-numbered Star Wars films, the Star Destroyer comes towards you. In the even-numbered ones, it moves away from you. I think this was the first time I noticed in the crawl, uh, they specifically called out Darth Vader as the evil Lord Darth Vader, obsessed with finding Luke Skywalker. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Going, really? You're just going to characterize him as evil, huh? It's just straight off the bat. That's uh, stop-motion uh, maquettes there from... Uh, is it Phil Tippett? I think it's Phil Tippett. Dinosaur Wrangler. <laughs> Supervisor. Supervisor, sorry. I think they put my, most of the uh, Rebels' uh, gear together just out of you know, going to a ski store. It's got this wonderful... Again, we keep going on about the lived-in quality, but it all seems like real clothing. Is uh, Mark Hamill wearing makeup there to cover up the, um, yes. the car accident? Yes, he'd had his car accident between Star Wars and uh, Empire, and they covered it up here briefly. And then after the uh, Wampa ice creature mauls him, they let those scars properly show. It's a little Rebel troop carrier there. This is an, again another sort of like compare this to the uh, hangar in um, at the end of the original Star Wars, where it's all just sort of like black backgrounds. Now suddenly everything's really there. Yeah. Loads of little droids wandering around, which is a really nice touch. Yeah. Also, is it safe for a Wookiee to be welding? Clearly, yes. As long as he's not wearing hairspray. Yeah, he's got goggles. <laughs> health and, proper health and safety has been followed. The Wookiee is wearing goggles. I, I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Do you want to tell the Wookiee to stop welding when he wants to weld? That's because Wookiees pull people's arms out of their sockets when they get them to stop welding. <laughs> Let the Wookiee weld. Uh, full <laughs> British comedy fans, that guy was the one who wanted a Waldorf salad. That's uh, General Riken uh, in uh, Faulty Towers. Harrison Ford, top of his game in this film. This is Han's movie, but it's also Luke's movie, and it's also Leia's movie. And that's, that's one of the strengths of Empire. It's really about the three of them. Well, for this one, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have as much of the droid perspective that the first one did. True. Lots of BLMs as well. I like that in set design. Blinky light machines. Apparently there's a reason why um, old sci-fi has a lot of blinky light machines and not a lot of things going on on screens. Um, because the resolution on people's TVs was so poor that there was no point putting text or numbers or anything up because nobody would be able to read it. Look at all these people passing them in the hallway going, guys, Excuse me? Can, you, can you take your drama <laughs> elsewhere? Take this outside, would you? Yeah. Awkward. <laughs> that guy was even staring at them in a kind of, you seriously, you're going to bring this in here? 
Okay, everyone, <laughs> stare at three uh, PO's right leg there. Uh, it's it's silver. Um, throughout the trilogy, I believe three PO has a uh, lower right leg that's silver. His calf, relative to his gold main form. But it's the sort of thing you don't really notice when you're a kid because, again, the resolution's so terrible you can't even make out the colours properly. I've got way too much caught up just watching the story. Can I say how much I love The Empire Strikes Back? It yes, is so great as a film. Just straight into the action. It hits the ground running. It's like it's, then I'll see you in hell. Gallows humour. That's uh, another of the... Uh, I mean, well, for a start, you got a uh, different scriptwriter. Originally, uh, uh, the original Star Wars was written by George Lucas. This was uh, Lee Brackett, who is now sadly departed, and Lawrence Kasdan. From reading the making of The Empire Strikes Back, I can confirm that Lee Brackett's first pass was not fantastic, and it was uh, Lawrence Kasdan's full revision of that that was one of the major reasons why Empire was suddenly a better class of movie. Kasdan went on to write Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Not The Last Jedi, but he co-wrote the Han Solo film with his son, John Kasdan. And although the story was by George Lucas and Philip Kaufman, Lawrence Kasdan wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. As a result of the change of writer, because George Lucas wrote the original script for Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back has a completely different flavour to it. It's less earnest, it's more knowing, there's more of a sense of human desperation about it. You really feel like the Rebels are a, a, a one bad battle away from going out. That um, the, the lightsaber artifact itself is a wonderful piece of kit. It's, uh, it's made from a Graflex uh, flashbulb for a, uh, a camera. It's basically, all they did was take this, this like widgety looking flashbulb thing, take off the top bit, and then stick some windscreen wiper blades to it. Oh, anyone know what Obi-Wan's uh, in uh, episode four is modeled off, if not uh, a Graflex? Because mm. Vader's is based on a Highland flashbulb. Uh, Obi-Wan's is actually an, an old World War I grenade <laughs> and a bit of bathroom tap and a sink like faucet. Stop killing the magic. Sorry. Actually, I don't know if that's killing the magic or it's, making it. No, no, it's magical. making it because they, they fabricated the whole universe out of like bits and bobs and, so, and, and it just seems more real. That's kind of my favorite thing about the, the original trilogy is everything is uh, is hand is it's found it's found objects so it looks lived in like you said before alex but combined and as well it is it, it's all it's all bits and bobs put together whereas and we'll just very briefly mention that the lightsaber specifically is what i want to call out for the prequel trilogy mm. as they are all machined, machined and yeah. handcrafted in a you know in a design space they rather look gorgeous. than found oh yeah they're very pretty they're sleek they're awesome mm. but it doesn't feel quite so um, operational as the, it does, yeah, yeah, it doesn't okay. feel like a used and lived in universe mm. in the prequels you weren't <laughs> going to mention them That's right. no I completely missed a really brilliant moment the bit when they close the doors it's such a small thing and it really amounts to nothing apart from making the characters more anxiety ridden over each other and sort of heightening the tension that way it, you know they just exchange grim looks rather than saying he's going to die they're all dealing with it in their own way as yeah. well. So 3PO's trying to reassure R2. Mathematically. And uh, Wookiee's... Uh, Wookiee. Chewie's off on his own. And, and Wookiee. Uh, Leia just doesn't want to talk to anybody. Yeah.
Star Wars exceeded all expectations in terms of profit, its revolutionary effect on the movie industry, and its unexpected resonance as a cultural phenomenon. Lucas hoped to become independent from the Hollywood film industry by financing The Empire Strikes Back himself with $33 million from loans and the previous film's earnings, going against the principles of many Hollywood producers to never invest one's own money. Now fully in command of his Imperial fleet, sorry, Star Wars Enterprise, Lucas chose not to direct The Empire Strikes Back because of his other production roles, including overseeing his special effects company Industrial Light and Magic and the handling of finances. Doesn't that sound like music to your ears when I say that? <laughs> Lucas offered the role of director to Irvin Kirshner, one of his former professors at USC School of Cinema. He was known for his smaller scale character driven films. Kirshner initially refused, citing his belief that a sequel would never meet the quality or originality of the original Star Wars. He called his agent, who immediately told him he was mental, and demanded that he take the job. After the various increases in budget, The Empire Strikes Back became one of the most expensive movies of its day, and after the bank threatened to pull his loan, the fuckers, Lucas was forced to approach 20th Century Fox. Lucas made a deal with the studio to secure the loan in exchange for paying the studio more money, but without the loss of his sequel and merchandising rights. After the film's box office success, unhappiness at the studio over the deal's generosity to Lucas caused studio president Alan Ladd Jr. to quit. The departure of his longtime ally caused Lucas to take Raiders of the Lost Ark to Paramount Pictures. He went a long road to try and maintain his creative control, and yeah. he, forget the prequels for a minute, it proved that it works yeah. that way. Going independent was a really good idea, actually. Not I think the fact that these mov- these three movies stayed independent is an important thing mm. to them. Not being beholden to any other particular studio. And ultimately, he, he was able to do so because he made so much money from the original. He's lived what most other aspiring directors would consider to be a dream. Maybe not in terms of integrity, but definitely in terms of productivity. Yeah, and considering from Star Wars, what else he he created and went on to hmm. do with the, the like ILM, Pixar, hmm. Skywalker Sound and the myriad of other things. And all of these films specifically have led to some massive technical advancements. It's the it's the wetter of their day. Absolutely. That lot was all from Wikipedia. Uh, the original version of Empire Strikes Back was released on Capacitance Electronic Disc in 1984. This format was commonly known as a video disc, leading to much confusion with the contemporary Laserdisc format. Laserdiscs were read optically with a laser beam, whereas CED video discs were read physically with a stylus, rather like a gramophone record. I have never heard of these! I haven't, but now I want to see one! Me too, I looked on Someone eBay. somewhere has got one, I guarantee you, and they're like waiting and waiting and waiting, they're going to sell it for millions. I am older than Yoda, and I have never heard of those. I actually had the three on Betamax. I was going to say. Wow. Later it was released on VHS, Betamax and Laserdisc several times during the 80s and 90s. Again, I've never seen a Betamax, but I at least know what they're like. Keep an eye out during the Battle of Hoth. General Veers is played by Julian Glover, who was Donovan in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the bad guy who drank from the wrong grail. Chose poorly. Also famously among Brits, Admiral Ozzel is played by Michael Sheard, better known as Mr. Bronson from TV's Grange Hill. 
now that their characters are fully embodied in this film, we can finally talk about Luke, Leia, Han, and Vader. There's an immediate tone shift between episodes four and five that is reflected in these characters. Everything suddenly becomes a lot more serious, and the idea of the rebels being on the run in the midst of a bitter and deadly civil war is never better exemplified. It's a war film. It's a chase movie, it's a spiritual journey to the light and dark sides of Luke's psyche, and it surpasses and expands upon A New Hope in almost every way possible. One of the key factors that's at work here that was entirely absent from the prequels is that the characters care about each other. They worry about each other. Their own lives become less important, and it sets up a bond of friendship that holds the entire saga together. In the prequels, Anakin resents Obi-Wan, Padme fears and is annoyed by Anakin, and Obi-Wan fears, resents, and is annoyed by Anakin. There's no bond but that which they announce is there. We don't feel it. First thing in Empire, Han worries about Luke. Then Leia, Chewie, and the droids worry about Luke and Han. Then when they get back together and once again part ways, they constantly keep one another in mind. Crucially, at the point when Yoda urges Luke to abandon his friends in favour of a colder, sacrificial, higher calling, the one Anakin clearly should have taken... Luke refuses, and through his actions, much inner turmoil is wrought. However, due to his purest and most unselfish of intentions, and because of his deep love and friendship with Han and Leia, Luke is able to eventually do what Anakin could not. I think you even see you know, the bonds of friendship and all that portrayed um, quite you know, uh, convincingly between the side characters, like Lando turns up. Mm. And when he, you know, there's that whole, you know, fake um, anger with Han, and there's like, what have you done with my ship? Yeah, what have you done with my ship? And the the line that I love is, and how are you doing, Chewbacca? Are you still hanging around with this loser? You can tell these guys have known each other for years. Yeah. You go back and look at like the equivalent, say, I don't know, Dexter and Obi Wan from um, Episode Two, the Cantina scene. That there was nothing there. You, those two didn't feel like you know, oh, because one of them wasn't even there. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is true. It was a tennis ball on a stick, and uh, and Ewan McGregor was being told, oh, yes, it's good to see you again, tennis ball on a stick. Hang on, what's yeah. this one? Is this the Ackley? And, you know, yeah, one of exactly. one of the most simultaneously hilarious and endearing bonds that they show is Chewbacca with C-3PO on oh, his yes. back running around yeah. Bespin. It's, it's kind of hilarious that they're in that situation as they're trying to escape, but at the same time, it's it's kind of powerful to have mm. Chewie, you know, behaving like that toward the stupid droid. And actually, I was I noticed this for the first time today while I was watching that scene. It's again, it's back to R two and three PO. Suddenly, you're back to how they started in the Tantive Four. Technically, Leia and Lando and Chewie are doing all the shooting of the stormtroopers, but really, it's the droids trying to get out. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, who was your favourite when you were a kid, Luke or Han? Han. Luke. Han. Han. The Hans win. <laughs> actually, no. To begin with, when I was very small, I think I was more of a Luke fan. I think by the time I was more into Han, everyone else had gone off Star Wars. Well, no, I, I did. I, okay, I pretended. Play, I didn't do it in the garden, but I did it in the um, sorry, in the playground. But we pretended Star Wars in the garden with my cousins, and right. there were four of us. There was me, my sister, and two of my cousins. So she was Leia. She was Leia, which is really awkward because I was Han. It's like, well, she's Ooh. my sister. No, this is not. Gonna, you should have been Luke at that Luke. stage. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing. But the other two had already shotgunned Luke and Chewie. So it's like, okay, I'm on, but that doesn't, you know, there's nothing there, we're not doing that bit. 
and I'm yeah. trying to imagine ten year old kids in 1999 going right. I'm Obi Wan, so I'll go and moan on the ship for an hour, and you be Qui Gon, and you go and dupe some alien. I mean, fuck all happens in Episode One. You can you can imagine like one kid going, I want to be Jar Jar Binks, and getting punched in the face. Yeah. Or one kid going, I want to be Darth Maul, and then the other's going off crying after he gets too rough with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like yank, yanks out the netball pole and starts splinging it around. But that's about the only interesting bit in Episode One. I don't. I, Honestly, if you ki- if there was anyone out there who's now in their late twenties, who was about ten in uh, in the year two thousand, tell us if you played Star Wars in the playground based on the prequels. Let us know. We want to know this. And hag your heads in shame afterwards. <laughs> Should have chosen a good trilogy, you whippersnappers. <laughs> yeah, they were pro- they were probably working for Lord of the Rings, and then they'll be in Gandalf. I think uh, Empire takes place like three years after the original Star Wars. And for those of you keeping track, Return of the Jedi takes place exactly one year after The Empire Strikes Back. So that's a lot of time to be missing Han Solo. And of course for Vader to be missing Luke. Okay, at what point did Yoda actually teach Uh, 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 (laughs) Obi-Wan? The Jedi Master who instructed me by (laughs) proxy. Maybe Yoda was like the Dean... When he was marching around going, confer with you the role of Jedi Knight, we do. That's technically instructing. <laughs> also, would Yoda teach a lot of the very young Jedi? So young presumably ladies. he would have yeah. one in his class Yeah, Lil Obi. By the way, Gosh, folks, that effect looks so good. Yeah. If you can lay hands on a Tauntaun's Tauntaun sleeping bag, do so. Yep, they're <laughs> out there. They exist. But they don't no, smell I, very I will bad. never buy one because I am... A very tall man. I'm six foot four. Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> so I can't out the, end. In the standard stuff like that. I have to and I thought they smelled bad. <laughs> Say it with me, folks. On the outside! <laughs> this scene's actually really kind of important, because if you think about it, it's the closest that Han and Luke actually get in the rest of the trilogy, uh, after the original Star Wars, because they're apart for all of Empire, and then, you know, they meet and they, they say, hey, how's it going in uh, Jedi? But they never just get to hang out. So I'd kind of like to read a bit of fanfic about what Han was saying to keep him and Luke sane throughout that whole night. You know, there's Wampers wandering around the place. It's absolutely sub-zero. Luke's delirious inside the guts of a Tauntaun. These days, that discussion would be a key scene. 2-1-B. And a tank of Bacta. Bacta, however you want to say it. It's uh, uh, Yeah, it's mending stuff. This is from Wikipedia. Bacta was a synthetic chemical substance that consisted of a gelatinous, translucent, red, alazi, and carvum bacterial particles that were mixed within a colorless, viscous fluid known as ambori. When a patient was exposed to Bacta, the bacterial particles within sought out wounds and promoted rapid tissue regeneration while preventing the emergence of scar tissue. Bacta was often thought of as a miracle fluid and seemed to be effective against almost every type of injury and ailment across an incredible cross-section of species throughout the galaxy. It was considered to be the best medicine available anywhere, replacing the previously used Colto. Laugh it up, Fuzzball. I'm like, now we're just going to be quoting the whole thing. That's rubbish commentary. <laughs> it's never really mentioned, but Leia does actually maintain a strong character throughout the trilogy and does have an arc of sorts, especially in uh, this one, Empire. She goes from being fiercely independent to actually feeling like part of herself has been taken away with Han. That's a great moment. You know, I, I hear that uh, there was an original draft of the script that had R2 uh, with actual dialogue where he was 
snarky and, and sarcastic. Gave subtitles. That's true. The original drafts of the first Star Wars movie, which was a complicated, overlong nightmare of half-realized characters and ideas that were far better implemented later on, has the following conversation between R2 and 3PO after they land on ostensibly Tatooine. Oh, what a desolate place this is. We're not built for this. You're nothing more than a dim-witted, emotion-brained intellectual. Why you were created is beyond my logic systems. Thanks to you, we're deserters. We'll probably be destroyed on sight. On top of that, you're going the wrong way. I've had enough of you, you pragmatic, nearsighted scrap pile. You go your own way. That hurt. But you'll be malfunctioning within a day. And you're going the wrong way. Your way is always the wrong way. Well, see. And don't let me catch you following me, begging for help, because you won't get it from me. Later on, as R2 is rolling through the rocky part of Tatooine... Well, this terrain is not ideal. It's so weird. It's so weird seeing R2 talk and be an asshole. I mean, R2's always been a bit of an asshole, but he's been, like, he's a little kid. That's the whole point. He's a smart little kid. He's not a jaded old bastard. This, uh, like, uh, blue jacket, white shirt that Han's got here, my favourite outfit of his. The best spin gear. Awesome stuff. I've always got a soft spot for the, for the first gear from New Hope. Also very cool. It's Han. Everything is cool. Yeah, pretty much. He doesn't have a bad outfit. Although, in Jedi, he has bad hair relative to the other two. To, to be fair, he was frozen in carbonite. That's not going to help your hair. That does indeed. It freezes and kills your hair. But there's a woman over there. See? On the left, there was another woman who's not Leia and not Mon Mothma. Oh. Rogue droid found the generator. You're on a huge snowy planet. Cover generator with snow. That is a fine point. I mean, not completely. But yeah. I feel really sorry for Peter May, who was in the snow having to do that. That must be horrible. Yeah. That's not, uh, like, flakes. I think they went to, like, Norway or something for this, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Check out the uh, the Rebellion's army insignia. The, the tags for the rank are... They're similar to the Empire as mm. far as they've got color ranks on them, but they're also kind of their own thing. Those were, like, silver plates with uh, circles on them, whereas the Imperials are all very rigid and square. Do you think they actually had a system for it, or it was just, like, whatever looked good? Um, I know that I've seen a system for it on the internet. I don't know if that's official oh. or not. Oh, yeah, I was just going to intercept oh. This is the Executor, the Super Star Destroyer, which dwarfs the regular-sized Star Destroyers. I okay. believe the Super Star Destroyers are about eight kilometers long. Something like that, yeah. First yeah. instance of the Empire theme here. First instance of the new Darth Vader. He's been given a redux from the original. In the original Star Wars, he is uh, a blunt instrument. Uh, he's quite petulant. He's used to getting his own way, but seems to be, like get quite... Um... So it is Anakin, then? <laughs> yeah. He's more like Anakin in Star Wars. In this, he doesn't even have to to uh, uh, consider whether or not he's going to get his own way. He's He just exerts that presence. The helmet's been remodeled. It's a lot shinier. The, the, the uh, outfit's more detailed. It's absolutely gorgeous. This this is Vader at his pinnacle. Do you think, right, when you roll out of the Imperial Academy and you get your assignment, do you reckon they sit there and go, not Vader ship, not, not Vader, Vader ship, ship, not Vader ship. Just <laughs> let, me tr- let me draw Thrawn, just not Vader. <laughs> Although, there's a good chance you will go up the ranks quite quickly. 
True. But you won't stay there. Yes. No. Unless Dead you do everything perfectly literally. every single time. He still looks young there, but like, like this this is basically Luke's loss of innocence, this whole film. He goes from like that Tatooine farm boy to being he's crushed at the end. Well, yeah. <laughs> he's been lied to. And you know, you can't be my father, you represent everything I hate. I have a question actually. Is there a point where in the trilogy that Vader finds out? Oh no, no. It, it takes place between uh, Star Wars and Empire. It, all, all that happens is someone says, who blew up the Death Star? Uh, someone named Skywalker. Skywalker, you say? But also, like, he should... Like, uh, that might just have been his right. I'm going to take down the Emperor. You lied to me. That illustrates me as like, why did they keep Luke's name as Skywalker? <laughs> so that they could say that Anakin Skywalker was his father. It wasn't planned. <laughs> so, so that must mean—it's just one of these funny things. It's, it's actually due to be uh, who actually knows who Darth Vader is. It's got to only be a handful of people. Ben, Yoda, the Emperor. Look at this—he is choking this guy from what I assume is extreme distance. Yeah, which is really, really taxing. So, are they on the same ship? They better be. <laughs> Because otherwise it doesn't make sense. That's no, Mr. like the Bronze farther away from... something is, the harder it is to influence it with the Force. So Vader is a force to be reckoned with. We knew <laughs> that already, but... Sorry, it just said in subtitles, goggling. <laughs> <laughs> force checks are much better with subtitles, apparently. Can you be a princess if your world has been blown up? Because what are you princess of? That's a fine point. There are some rocks over a 214 Alderaan Way... Nice. That is what I'm princess of. Take it up with them. It might just simply be an honorary title after that. That's true. You know, former U.S. presidents are still called Mr. President after their term is over. At-at walkers. Some awesome. of the finest pieces of hardware on screen ever. And R2, doesn't he look fantastic? Again, one of the most iconic uh, uh, cinema heroes. Right, now this is the Battle of Hoth, one of the greatest battle scenes ever laid to camera. On one level, it's because it's so accessible to children and manages to balance excitement with threat. On another, it's because the blending of real-life actors reacting to the what would have been in real life laughably tiny miniatures being moved along using stop-motion animation absolutely sells the scene. There's never a disconnect between what's happening in the snowfield and what's happening to the rebels. It's a constant flux of action and reaction. And in exactly the same way as the, the immensity of the Star Destroyers was sold in the first one, the enormity of the ATAT all-terrain armored transport walkers here just infiltrated the minds of children and stayed there. For the rest of our lives, those Atats are going to be huge. And even though the Rebels fail, they tried so hard and all the characters we love survived, so the battle never seems like this lost cause, because it was never about beating the Imperials. It was always just about keeping them busy so you could get the Rebels away to safety. This fight scene inspired one of my favorite... Um phrases my my best friend and I use in that same role-playing campaign we were trying to encourage our players to think with toe cables mm-hmm. not the easiest we were encouraging outside of the box uh, ah. approaches thinking towards you know obstacles we were throwing their way 
Now you're thinking the toe cables. Exactly, that's the reference. <laughs> I do like the way this shows the, the rebels as coming together as a force to be reckoned with and, and sort of working together and there being much more strategy in the way they operate. They seem much more organised now. Um, than they did in Star Wars. They're a bit more ragtag and, and um, skin of your teeth in the first one. Yeah, they, I mean, they let some farm kid on his first visit up to uh, <laughs> up to Rebel headquarters. Yeah, okay, you can fly with us. Yeah, what's Slow your experience? One prats, you say? But yeah, I sure, why not? Fly. I got a couple of other names here uh, while I was doing my uh, research into, as to why Empire looked different. Um and, and felt different. Obviously, you got the different script writers, and, and they got much more of a sort of a focus on, like I said, gallows humor and a sort of a darker, more. Um, it's not somber, it's actually more fun and more funny uh, than the original Star Wars. But, I imagine um, there must have been a budget increase as well. The original Star Wars cost $11 million, Empire cost 33 Jedi cost 42 and it made $775 million, and then $538 million, and then $572 million, which means more people turned up for Jedi than turned up for Empire. Interestingly, with the prequel trilogy later, they all cost between $113 and $115 million. Phantom made a billion, Clones made 649, and more people showed up for Sith at 848. But when you get to The Force Awakens, it goes insane. $306 million to make The Force Awakens. One of the most expensive films ever made, and it took two billion. Rogue One, 265 million, made one billion. My guess is fewer people will turn up for The Last Jedi than for The Force Awakens. But back to the differences between The Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars. It feels like it was written by grown-ups. Sorry, George, but um, <laughs> um, uh, the, the cinematographer, Peter Shusitsky, uh, who also went on to direct A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, and Mars Attacks. Interesting selections. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was uh, also edited by Paul Hirsch, who also edited Star Wars. And from the sounds of it, the original Star Wars in its raw form was a mess. And basically, because Paul Hirsch was a total wizard, and I, I, I seem to remember something along the lines of George Lucas's wife also helped. Uh, they managed to edit all of this footage into not only a coherent film, but a really great, neat space fantasy. Never underestimate the power of a really good editor. Yeah. Save the damn thing, because uh, like everyone else was saying, this is going to crash and burn, and George, you'll never work in this town again. But along with the uh, new cinematography, you get new uh, lighting as well. I mean, look at look at how differently this is lit from the original Star Wars, where everything looked like... I mean, the the sets, again, they, there's just so much more detail here, whereas everything looked before like it was, uh, you know, balsa wood, sort of like uh, hastily thrown together. The original Star Wars felt like it had a lot in common with the original Star Trek, if that makes any sense. Like sort of like they they put it together with what they could, it whereas was held or, together with blue tack and enthusiasm. Yeah, specifically Empire feels more like it has in common with um, the Lord of the Rings in that they were like, right, okay, we are going to make a really great Star Wars film now, so let's put a lot of effort into these ones. Everybody very much seems to know what they're doing with this one now. Whether that's because they had more professionals on board, or whether it was because everybody who was on for the original had now become professional. We mentioned before the attitude of. The, the crew and, and people influencing Star Wars, that attitude must have been a completely different animal for Empire because yeah. Yeah. we're making a sequel to an incredibly successful film. But imagine the pressure as well. 
everyone's sure. going to be watching this one. Everyone's going to be scrutinizing it and saying it's not as good as the original. We've got to make it way better than the original. How do they manage it? How did it end up not being multi-buggered? Like, uh, you know, execs coming in and meddling with the thing. I think that Lucas did not want to be messed with, and I think he um, he was able, with the profits that he made from the original Star Wars, to self-fund a lot of this so that people didn't come in and meddle. And, crucially, he didn't do too much meddling himself. He let, I mean, Kirshner, uh, Irvin Kirshner, the uh, director, was originally one of his mentors and, uh, I, I believe, taught him. So he kind of just... He respected him enough to just step back and let him do his thing. As soon as Phantom Menace turned out to be as bad as it was, he should have stepped back, given it to a different director and a different writing team, and said, right, here are the basic stories I want to tell for the next two. Let's do that, but just better than I managed here. He needed a little humility at that point. But I'm, I'm only mentioning that here to juxtapose it with Empire in, insofar as he was like, you know what I'm really good at? being a producer. On January 11th, 1977, one day before he was set to shoot one of the final scenes needed for Star Wars, Mark Hamill was in a car accident in which he fractured his nose and left cheekbone. According to Star Wars producer Gary Kurtz, Hamill was in surgery from 9am until 4pm. As a result of the accident, a double was used for the land speeder pickup shots. This left Hamill with a deeply scarred face, hence the Wampa attack at the beginning of Empire, to explain it. In my humble opinion, it seems greatly fortuitous in hindsight, as Luke now looks like a battle-ravaged warrior. It's particularly notable in Jedi when there are many long lingering shots of Luke's craggy face as he's deep in thought. He seems worlds away from the somewhat squeaky farm boy of A New Hope. The way the sets are lit, the sturdier design of the world, the far clearer, less redubbed dialogue, smoother editing and all-round more polished feel makes Empire seem like it was made a decade after A New Hope, not just three years. Star Wars is charmingly creaky, even in the special editions, and retains a classic Golden Age feel, as though it could have been released in the 1940s and still have delighted audiences. In contrast, Empire could be released tomorrow and would be lapped up as a dark fantasy classic. Albeit a deliberately retro one, with unusual adherence to practical effects. It's, it's impressive. They seem to find like a, this amazing middle ground. Like I, I, mm. I saw you on Twitter earlier, like saying you're watching the 1980s version. Oh no, you emailed me. You said you were watching the 1980 version. Yeah. So I watched that um, this evening, just before we recorded, and I watched it. and I thought, you know what? The, the effects obviously are really primitive compared to today. Mm. Back then, they would have been brilliant. But what they, what they did with Empire that they didn't do with um, New Hope is. They made sure they kept themselves within their limitations. They understood their limitations. They didn't bite off more, they, more than they can chew. Mm. So things like, what's it, the massive space battle around the, um, the Death Star, we said last week, isn't that impressive, isn't brilliant, because obviously... We got into trouble for that. Giles loves that scene. He gets goosebumps, because obviously he saw it for the first time in the cinema. And I'm assuming, Mike, did you see that in the cinema? Because you're old. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that in the in the theater when I was seven years old. Yeah. That's I was seven the year Star Wars came out. Oh, well, on, perfect on age. Oh, I mean, I I've always said that I was the perfect age for it. Seven when Star Wars came out. Ten when Ten Empire forever. came out. My so, friends and I would spend all day at the theater mm. and you know just hide under the seats between showings and watch it all day. And in fact, they just 
I saw the, all of the movies at the exact same theater, this enormous twin domed theater called the Cinedome that looks like a, a, a massive pair of tits, but they just recently tore it down last week, which was really sad. Big chunk of an even bigger pair of tits. <laughs> Ooh, I hope. Because it was so much a big part of my formative years, I, I was pretty consumed by Star Wars. It was Star Wars and football were like the two things that I loved, and I had all the action figures, all the trading cards, all the ships, all the everything. Still do, actually, in, in a trunk somewhere in the basement of my parents' house. But it was, you know, it was like the most important thing to me at the time. And actually, you know, kind of taught me some, some pretty important lessons, especially The Empire Strikes Back. But we'll probably touch on that as we get toward the end of the, the movie. And now I can't not think of Mike as being straight out of Stranger Things. Empire has a moody pace which propels you onward, the ever-looming shadow of Vader threatening to engulf our heroes as his obsession grows more personal by the minute, right up to the game-changing finale. And regarding the scripts, bringing outside sources in means this is the first Star Wars film not exclusively written by Lucas that we can talk about. The delivery is also far tighter and more natural, leaving the prequels in the dust. Lawrence Kasdan and the first draft author Lee Brackett, now sadly departed, captured everything that was interesting about Lucas's universe and then made it for grown-ups as well. It's lean and snappy and clearly benefited from ad-libbing on set. In short, it's how a Star Wars film should be scripted and hasn't been for 17 years. Although five years after I said that, it was again. Where am I? You're my guest. Where are the others? You mean the murderers, traitors and thieves you call friends? You'll be relieved to hear I have no idea. You still want to kill me? That happens when you're being hunted by a creature in a mask. Though I dispute my own use of the term written for grown-ups now in retrospect, seven years on. It's written for smart kids and emotional adults. I think the uh, the point there you make about it being for grown-ups mm. is why those movies were so good for me as a kid. They mm. weren't pandering, they weren't written for kids, they weren't you know talking down to me. Mm. It felt like I was watching a piece of entertainment aimed at adults, but that I could relate to. And that's yeah. why at least the first two movies specifically were so important and so powerful for me as a kid. Oh, you've just hit on something perfect there. I've been wanting to try and work out a way to frame this, the whole series of, of these we've been doing. There is a sense of pandering in the prequels, which you're right with, in terms of actually going, right, so kids are going to watch these films, they're going to want a young Anakin, otherwise they're not going to be able to relate to it, so let's put a kid in there. Girls are going to watch these films, they like dresses, let's put Amidala in as many dresses as possible. Boys are going to want some fighting, so let's make sure Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon do a lot of fighting, especially at the end. And it's, it's, they throw people in there just to cater to everyone. Plinkett has said, and it's quite a, a ballsy statement, that Mace Windu was effectively put in there for the black community. Because, well, for a start, Jar Jar Binks is not going to exactly bring them in. But <laughs> one of the greatest black actors of all time certainly might. The fact that Mace Windu is a fairly rubbish character and Sam Jackson has bugger all to do for three films is just a tragedy heaped mm. upon that. If, if effectively, if he was just in there to fill a demographic. 
but there aren't any kids in the original trilogy, and yet kids love them. So that completely scotches the idea that you've got to put kids in or kids won't like it. And right. it, I mean, there's no, there's like one girl, which made it very difficult when you were playing Star Wars in the playground, there was more than one girl. I don't think they, they put Leia in there just for the girls. I think she, she feels a, a very important role in the film, and it, it doesn't really seem like that she's just been put there as wardrobe dressing. Most of her outfits are a little bit kind of military. Mm. And I, I know you don't want to hear this, Alex, but I, I feel like a lot of that pandering began with Return of the Jedi once all of the toys in the films and all of that were so successful. No, no, I'll admit that. I can understand the flaws of Jedi. Yeah, yeah. you get, you know, burp humor and fart humor and Mm -hmm. characters that are named Salacious Crumb and characters that are named uh, Admiral Akbar, who is the Mon Calamari, which is why he looks so much like a fish. You know, all of that kind of thing where in the first two movies... People were named things that you could believe. They were sort of otherworldly, but they weren't plays on, you know, puns or, or things like that. I don't, mm. I don't know. That's just where it sort of took a turn for me. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, there's, uh, there's many things about uh, the prequels, which were started in Jedi, and we'll, we'll touch on that next week. But you're right, there's, it's definitely got not so much an adult tone, but Pixar capture that sense of being able to be enjoyed by everyone in exactly the same way as these original adults can enjoy Jedi as well. There's plenty of stuff in there for adults. I don't even know who the prequels are for. Because... George Lucas. (laughs) Yeah, they're too complex and political and boring for the kids. And kids don't like romance, so what the fuck was that doing in episode... Mm. uh, No, sorry, we established that. They were trying to do Titanic. And and, and yet, they're, they're way too like twee and explain everything in words of one syllable for the adults to enjoy so god knows who they were for i think another reason why empire kind of works so well uh is for me the 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 film is about han Mm. principally rather than luke luke you know jedi and and new hope are well new hope was kind of about leia it was about getting her out and it was about luke's journey to rescue her Mm -hmm. jedi obviously is about luke is you know his inevitable conflict and facing his destiny empire is about han han is as we established last week the best character the most interesting character Mm -hmm. and because it's focused on him it's about it almost becomes a kind of rogue's tale to use an rpg term it is a rogue's tale and i personally and i think a lot of people always find rogue's tales much more interesting it's the kind of the Robin Hood, the Jack Sparrow, the uh, the Axel Foley, the people that are, you know, they kind of they stagger the line between good and evil, or or law abiding and not law abiding, or whatever. Mm. And they're the characters that people absolutely love, and they show. And and as a result, you know, we get a look into this much much darker side of the universe with bounty hunters and smugglers and Lando's mm. shifty operation and all of this, and it makes for much more gripping viewing. It almost becomes a thriller more than a fantasy. You know, the first one is blatantly a fantasy. Uh, you know, the castle, evil castle, wizard, princess. We did all this last week. This one's very much a thriller and a mystery, and that's that pace is brilliant, and I love that. It's Han's last hurrah, too, really, as a, a snarky, inventive, courageous badass, and then yeah. it's sort of emasculated. They water him Jedi down something chronic in Jedi, definitely. I was actually going to conserve my whole diatribe on Han's arc for next week because it's too big to fit into this along with everybody else. Um, <laughs> simply because there's fuck all to talk about regarding Han in Jedi, and I don't want it to just be about <laughs> Luke and Vader. No, you're, you're right, James. It's, he's definitely takes centre stage in this one. Uh, also, significantly, 
everyone had tweaked that Harrison Ford had star quality out the yin-yang by this point. Yeah. And he was already lined up for Indiana Jones, and it was like, right, we've got someone here. Let's stick hands centre stage. And boy, does he eat up that camera. Every single shot he's on, every single scene he's in, every single line he has, mm. you just love. Mm. Also, the music in this film is just incredible it, it, i i would quite possibly say one of john williams's best scores if yeah. not the yep. best score ever i mean we all heard me gush about john williams last week and i apologize for that i will be a lot calmer this week <laughs> i just love it i absolutely love it there are so many iconic themes in this score you've got the imperial march which is has been parodied so much mm. and used as a kind of theme for it that is the theme for evil Mm. If you could sum up evil in all shapes and forms in one musical stretch, it would be the Imperial March. They use it in, like, I think they've used it in The Simpsons. I remember watching Pop Idol or X Factor or one of them, mm. and they introduced what, you know, the bad judge to the theme of Darth Vader's. They introduced Mr. Burns with it, and they didn't even change it at all. They were just like, dun, 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 dun. If you go to an American college football game, if the defense stops the offense, the marching band plays the Imperial March. <laughs> How's that for pervasive? Yes. Brilliant. You also have, like, you know, you've got the Yoda's theme, which we talked about earlier, which is just beautiful and really serene. Mm -hmm. You've got the asteroid theme, possibly one of my favourite pieces of the mm. entire trilogy. Yeah. Um, in fact, can we just listen to a little bit of that? I think we can. up with that um the, the <laughs> violin amazing amazing uh, the other thing that come down it's like the come down that It's like a, a roller coaster just pulling in to the to the station. You're like, oh, that was awesome. Yeah. It, is, it is very roller coaster, that music. That is exactly what I thought when I saw it in the cinema. For that. The Empire was the first Star Wars film that I saw in the cinema for the first time rather than watching it on video beforehand. And, my God, it was amazing. So you hadn't seen Empire before then? I had never seen Empire before I saw wow. it in the cinema. And then you were, what, seven or eight? I, I was... Uh, yeah. seven, Eleven. Eleven. The last theme that I think is... is truly amazing and and possibly sums up john williams's genius is the hannah leia romance music the hannah leia romance music it's it's just brilliant 
on its own, it's such a beautiful piece of music. It completely sums up and, and evokes the emotion that he wants it to. It evokes the, uh, the feeling of tenderness and so forth. It also goes to show like how, and I tried saying this to you lot, but you started going on about magnets last week. Um, it explains how he, he uses a theme, and he can use it in so many different situations, and it can evoke completely different emotions, completely different feelings, and it, it, but still be brilliant. So, for example, we first one of the first times we hear it is as Han runs onto the Millennium Falcon during the Battle of Hoth mm-hmm. and tries to turn on. It comes in quite cheekily in the background. With a, it, it's almost mocking him as he runs on and tries to bash the controls of the Millennium mm-hmm. Falcon to get going. It goes like this. And then you hear, I think you even hear it at the end of the... Um, the asteroid field, like, as a kind of come down. Mm. It's part of the come down, it's, and it's it, again, it's that kind of relief. You hear it as um, um, when they when they float away from the star destroyers um, with the garbage, and it's quite, it's a relief. It's like, oh, thank God we managed that. Mm. Possibly the best part, part is used. It's during the escape from Cloud City, and it builds up, and it's quite desperate, and it's used quite, um, quite, uh, mm. you know, with a lot of tension and so forth. And it's getting to the bit where R2 is trying to open the door, and they're surrounded by stormtroopers, and the only hope is R2 open this door. And as he opens it, it is magnificent. Oh yeah, it crashes in. It, it crashes in. It's bombastic it's majestic it's amazing it erupts it, that, that is the only word for it it erupts into the full theme and it's just beautiful Remarkably effective on me. I, I just recently, a couple days ago, watched the movie again, and yeah, that part in particular is one of the the biggest kind of rushes you get from the entire movie. Yeah. But would it be would it be like that if you didn't have John Williams' score? Or Not if at all. If it was Danny Elfman. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that shot. What blows me away is that the two Star Destroyers, three, I'm sorry, three Star Destroyers, were looking so focused at that little Corellian cruiser. (laughs) They nearly crashed into each other in 1080 space. It's a kilometer long. (laughs) You should notice it coming at you. But that was, or maybe that's Imperial arrogance. He's going to swerve first. Don't play chicken with a Star Destroyer. Look at that TIE fighter exploding. Obviously, it's brilliant commentary stuff. Look at that TIE fighter exploding. <laughs> oh, man. Chewie looked not happy about that. Anybody know what the TIE stands for in TIE fighter? 
Oh, oh gosh, I do, and it's escaping me right now. Twin ion engine. Hmm. But no shields. Yeah, no, no they don't shields. give them shields. They don't give them atmosphere. They're basically just like they're they're in full atmo suits with uh, just them the in reason space. That Rogue Squadron is is Rogue Squadron is is celebrated for being as amazing a squadron of X-Men ships as it is is because those pilots have a lot better survival rate than TIE fighter pilots. Well, they yeah. have shields on their ships. Because the Empire try to choke their enemy with numbers. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because they've got used to working with clones? They feel well, like they Yeah, it's, it's, for a while it was, it's based on a military yeah. factory mentality rather than um, hearts and minds. Yeah. Well, that was the... Um, the Russian approach, wasn't it? Just throw all the soldiers in the world at them. Mm. Uh, the, did we mention this before? The the idea of the Empire being the British Empire and uh, them having this very cruel kind of colonial mentality to them and elitism and classism about them. Like there's, there's the, the the brass and the officers. And then there's the grunts and the stormtroopers, and everybody else is beneath them. It's kind of underlined by the fact that um, a lot of the officers are British actors. Mm. But I think Good. our first catch of the day. It's, um, I mean, any historically any empire is usually shown as being not that pleasant, corrupt and decadent. Yeah, and their whole purpose is to go around the world and, and plunder as much as they can. Yeah. So if the Empire is the British Empire, what is Jabba in relation to that? Oh, he's, um... Oh, I so know, I know what I want to say, but I will get yelled at. He's a Turkish crime lord in an opium den. Okay. Okay, I wouldn't get yelled at for saying that. It's horrendous racism. <laughs> I love the set design for Dagobah. Because, yeah, you keep it shrouded in mist, and uh, there's this, you know, air of mystery about the planet. I want how crazy is Yoda? Because is he is he just putting it on? When he goes, I cannot teach him, he seems to have all his marbles absolutely together. I, it seemed like he was just trying to goad Luke. I think part of the purpose of him coming to Dagobah as well, it's, it's not just penance. Ultimately, he needed to be somewhere that was so far beneath the notice of the Empire that if any Jedi turned up in the future, they would have somewhere safe to go. Hmm. And there's also, uh, in the extended universe, there's some talk about how this planet is kind of, it's got some dark side energy to it. Yeah, that tree. Did, did Which, it ever actually establish what, what happened in that tree, in the EU, uh, the now well, defunct EU? in the part that I read, there was a uh, Sith Lord of some kind, a, a very dark force user who had spent some time on there while Yoda was on the planet and Yoda defeated him in that cave. That would make sense. So was it just his spirit or was it actually him? It's. I think it's just some darkness that was there and, and the dark side of the force is, is very damaging to, I guess, organic life in general. Yeah. Because uh, we see what it does with physical characteristics to actual dark side users. We see that with... Uh, Anakin at the end of episode three, his eyes were yeah. starting to yellow. We see that with uh, Palpatine, Palpatine big time. Um, but the and of course Vader here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably a reference to. Uh, there's a lot of supernatural different cues and things that if you are you know if you're like a witch hunter or something like that, dead and decrepitness seems to follow those things around. I think it might be a little bit of a nod to that kind of supernatural storytelling 
to see where the darkness it affects everything else around it mm. can I just say that little glimpse there you saw of Vader where you just see the burnt back of his head that just just fuel for the imagination you know yeah. you see the back you just wonder oh, yeah. what the front it just feeds into the imagination just just, just it's all on the lines of just give a little information and let the audience do the work for them you know yeah. do the work for you that is something that's very well handled in this one actually the the idea of you just see little bits here and there um and and you fill the blanks in yourself i i really enjoy 3po's mask design because he always looks clueless it's the wide eyes the big eyes it is but this is the thing though isn't it there's like half a dozen situations in the entire universe where a protocol droid would be useful and he's getting thrown into all of these situations that he wasn't designed to handle at all. True. Find someone. Nice. That's pretty good. Help you, I can. Yes. I was very happy to hear uh, Mr. Oz make an appearance in, in Rebels. That was wonderful. Oh, yes. Spoiler warning. I just said Mr. Oz made an appearance. I didn't say who. Joe True could be the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it was actually Fozzie Bear. Yeah, it was Miss Piggy. <laughs> Playing a Gamorrean guard. Oh! Nice. The Yoda Muppet. Again. You see, he has so much personality. Yeah. I keep using the word iconic, but it's hard not to just like keep going back to just a word which sums up how just looking at this creature or person or ro- droid or ship sums up so many feelings in, in one go but no i don't think he's lost any any of his sharpness he's a jedi he's extremely well trained uh the creature can meditate for hours upon hours and that's probably what he's done a lot of on this planet in exile also yeah he's 900 years old and the last 20 years really isn't going to have made that much difference to him true maybe the slightly uh crazy person act it is to see what kind of person luke is oh no absolutely yeah it's, it's there to try to, to to bring it out of him because even when it wasn't written yet the the much anger in him side of anakin was definitely an aspect that he was testing luke for A few words on Yoda. It may seem like either a bold claim or one that's relatively unchallenged depending on what films you watch, but I would cite Frank Oz's work here with Yoda to be the finest performance with a puppet in cinema history. When he first meets Luke, Yoda acts like a complete child, drawing the genuine unmasked reactions out of Skywalker, and then when he's revealed to be the wise Jedi Master Luke seeks, his character transforms before our eyes to one of aged pain and regret with dignity and expressiveness and more personality than the full cast of the prequels combined. I was about to say that. It's a sad state of affairs when a puppet can outact the entire prequel cast. Especially the fact that there's some actually really good actors in there. They could have given us personality, it just wasn't teased out of them. 
Every sigh and slump of the shoulders, every frown and accusing poke of his gyma stick speaks of being who has seen the world fall away at the actions of power-hungry men. He's now jaded and embittered, unready to train Luke despite him being the last remnant of the Jedi until a show of contrition and determination is conferred. Like Vader, he seeks to break Luke down and strip away the layers of self-absorption and recklessness that plagued Anakin. Unlike Vader, he wishes to rebuild Luke into a powerful model of Jedi calm and passivity, warding him off reliance on weapons and attack, effectively to send out a younger, fitter, stronger version of Yoda himself to deal with Vader and his Emperor. There is a deleted scene that would have been at the end of Revenge of the Sith that we forgot to mention in our episode 3. It was taken out to allow more focus on the Skywalker family. It simply depicts Yoda's escape pod landing on Dagobah and him walking down the steps, glancing around and sighing as he begins his decades-long self-imposed exile. Punishment for his lack of foresight and his inability to defeat the cackling new emperor. It's a redefining moment for the character, key to the whole saga, and it's a crying shame that Lucas and company felt it was too distracting to put in the final movie. There was one part, like I said, I was watching it um, today, Empire Today, and there was one part, one line, where, and again, maybe it's because I've watched the prequel, so I now, I subconsciously think about the backstory a lot more now when I'm watching this. Maybe not the way it was depicted, but certainly what the backstory involved, and I think about it in relation to what's going on. Through the Force, things you will see, other places, the future, the past, old friends long gone. And as he says that, his eyes sag, and I just can... I, 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 in my head, picture all of the Jedi that fell during Order 66. There was a reference in, uh, in Rebels, and I won't give anything away by, by mentioning it, uh, that something to do with time that got me thinking about where Yoda was in the timeline and whatever it was that was happening on Rebels, I'm going, Yoda's been by himself on this planet for 13 years. What is he doing? Deep in meditation and learning stuff from Qui-Gon Jinn. Probably. At this point, it seems rather apropos to suggest that all of you folks who love the original trilogy take the time to watch Star Wars Rebels. It's totally worth investing in. It's deceptively child-friendly, especially at first, and the first few episodes are not going to blow you away. You'll just be really happy to, to feel certain Star Wars motifs repeated for you. But slowly as the series goes on, it begins to feel more and more like something that really could have happened within the Star Wars universe. And it's got a great team of characters. And it's rare I get the chance to say this. If you hated Clone Wars, you might love this. If you loved Clone Wars, you'll love this. What an interesting walk. He actually looks like he's got legs right there. What it was was actually Frank Oz was underneath. Uh, it was like a it was a raised kind stage. of a drop down stage. Yeah. yeah. And so Luke was walking around on top of that, and Frank was shuffling around underneath with Yoda on top of his head, pretty much. But again, Mark Hamill sells Yoda as well as it's a, it's a two-man thing. Uh, as well as Frank Oz giving us the performance, it took the reaction of Mark Hamill to really sell us that that the character was communicating with with Luke. And it's, you, if you think about it, it, it must be a risky move to make such an important character uh, literally aim up it to make it a non-humanoid, non a mm. non not an actor in a suit. It is just literally a muppet. There's so much going on 
in these little scenes like this. And they're not and I I love that they don't call out anything in the dialogue here. It's Leia's trying to fight with this thing and this conversation's happening and they're they're having their own little subtext and their own interactions while she's trying to fix the ship and he's going, No, no, let's let's talk about us. They both bring it down at this point. They could have spent another twenty minutes or so bickering with each other, but just about the time when it would have got tedious, he gets a little bit more tender. Oh, I just quivered more. a little bit. Ooh. This is what the uh, Mass Effect hologram communicators are based on, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Oh, they've got those kind of trousers. I never noticed that before, the Imperials. Uh, it's that kind that uh, Lloyd Bridges said in uh, Hot Shots. They ran on a material when they got to the knee, so don't give me any shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the riding, riding shorts or riding pants, whatever you want to call them. This is right behind his meditation chamber. So, like, when he's at his most, like, trying to be, like, the Sith level of calm, the Emperor could be like, eh, I need to speak to you, eh. <laughs> Go for Baba Palpatine. <laughs> yeah, look old, at just the, the spring disgusting, of... decrepit look. There is a great disturbance in the Force. I have felt it. We have a new enemy, Luke Skywalker. Yes, my master. He could destroy us. He's just a boy. Obi-Wan can no longer help him. He's strong with him. Again, though, he's speaking in such weird Machiavellian kind of like, at this point, they both know he lied. However, it does make Awkward, sense. Awkward, I know. If he's trying to... Um, Distance Anakin from... Uh, yeah, detach his... Vader from Anakin, yeah. his former self. He could also be just trying to provoke Vader because Vader performs well in anger. True. Yeah. Actually, that's really nice then because then you've got the juxtaposition between Yoda trying to provoke an anger reaction from Luke and not wanting to see it Mm -hmm. and Palpatine trying to provoke an anger reaction from Vader and wanting to see it. I cannot teach him. The boy has no patience. He will learn patience. Hmm. Much anger in him. Like his father. Was I any different when you taught me? Yes, Obi-Wan, you were very different. Oh, similarly, uh, actually, Yoda's got that the evil tree practically in his backyard. I don't think it's an evil tree. I was going to say this before, actually. A domain of evil it is. No, it's re- his direct quote. Yes, he says that, but I've always really liked the idea that it's nothing. It's just it's what you What's take in, there? in there. Only what you take with you. Much anger. And I love the fact that he changes here so completely here. That's a bit of a, a um, almost a sadness there, I think. If He's talking about having watched Luke from a distance all these years. Yeah waiting to see if he had the potential to become a Jedi and getting steadily and steadily more disappointed when he was, um, you know, not displaying the right kind of focus. And I do like the idea of um, sort of you, you'll know you're in, in touch with the light side of the Force when you're calm and at peace and Passive. your instinctive reactions seem to flow. Um, but the point at which me and Yoda diverge is the no questions, because I'm always... Always with the questions. Always why. No, no, there is no why. Notice, by the way, folks, that Luke starts out in the first Star Wars clad in white, ends in Jedi clad in black, and here he is grey. In Image of the Jedi, he's dallying with uh, the dark side, and he sort of he stands on the cusp. 
He's not really heading down the dark path, but he's he's in a very, very difficult situation regarding what to do about Vader. And I do, I think that is my favourite look of Luke, is the Return of the Jedi look yeah. that he has. There will be a substantial reward for the one who finds the Millennium Falcon. You are free to use any methods necessary, but I want them alive. No disintegrations. As you wish. Lord Vader. My lord, we have them. No disintegration. He points it at Boba Fett and is like, surely if you're really good at capturing people, I think I mentioned this on the uh, at the uh, episode, you don't disintegrate anyone or anything. Depends what the bounty is. Is it wanted, dead or alive? Well, if it's disintegrated, you're neither dead or alive. You don't exist anymore. <laughs> you're still dead. By which I mean they're neither an alive body nor a dead body. You need a dead body to claim a bounty. You got his reputation by turning Not up with bottles of ashes and saying, yep, this is definitely them. Yeah, totally them. I've got video footage. You'll notice how all of the uh, Star Wars characters that actually got figures have got slightly richer backstories. They're like, well, what is Bosk all about? What do we put on the back of the card? Oh, we didn't mention Dengar. Dengar was there too. Covered in yep. toilet paper, standing around the back. That's what Dengar says. That's what Dengar always says. <laughs> in the Falcon, by the way, where Leia tells 3PO to shut up, mm. that's the first moment that she consciously sides with Han. Yeah. She's like, you know what? He's, He's right. He's right. <laughs> you be quiet. You're not helping. <laughs> Okay, I have to ask you guys about this. Why does everybody, myself included, think Boba Fett is so freaking awesome? All Boba does is stand around and hold a gun. <laughs> That's it. He well, doesn't he, kill he a does single w- person. He does one thing that demonstrates what a badass he is, because you see just how clever Han is in escaping the Star Destroyer, but Boba Fett is already one step ahead of him and right. had already no, showed it out. No, 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 That was just stupid. So Boba Fett is on the Executor, the yep. Executor, whichever we did, decided on about we an hour ago. decided on Executor, it sounds The Executor. Like Boba is on the Executor, yep. right? How, then, does he suddenly appear in the garbage section of the same ship that Han is on, which is, I don't know, a couple of light years ahead, because the the Executor came out of the asteroid field to call the Emperor and to some of the bounty hunters. The Star Destroyer that Han actually takes on and the Millennium Falcon attaches to is a completely different ship. How is Boba Fett there, and how does he know... And what it, sort of garbage is that? Actually, yeah, not, it's Captain Needer's ship. It's nothing to do with the Executor. Exactly, exactly. Well, no, surely Fett would just go to his last known location? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe he's very clever. Yeah, he's not. That's he's, why he's so badass. Xanteriad is grinding his teeth at the moment. He loves him some Boba Fett. I can give you some contributing factors. Go on, then. Okay, right. Here's number one as a reason why it, it, everyone thinks Boba Fett's so cool. Pre-release action figure. Yeah. The end of the original Star Wars line. You'll remember this one, Mike. The, the first, the first films figures. They had a uh, Boba Fett figure. Was it was it free if you collected enough tokens? It was. You had to send it in, and it actually had a missile that fired from his pack. I have the the original one when you sent in the the uh-huh. box or the proof of purchase gizmos. It's unlikely that Mike has the actual missile firing one, since that's considered the holy grail to Star Wars vintage collectors. 
One recently fetched $150,000 on eBay. For that money, you can buy an actual backpack that fires an actual missile. As far as I can tell, they never actually sent out any of the ones where the missile fired because, you know, kids in the test were shooting their eyes out. Either way, basically, it was this sort of, ooh, this guy's going to be in the next uh, movie, and boy, does he look badass. And then when you got sent it, automatically it was a free figure, so everyone was going to be like, awesome! And he looked really cool as well. Because, I mean, looking at that figure, even as a child, you don't even need to see him doing anything. He looks like he's a bag of tricks, right? So you got that. Um... But then when you actually see him in the in the film, he's got quiet, threatening resolve. He doesn't even stride around the place shouting at people like Vader does, especially in, in episode four. He's just there. He's always in the right place at the right time. And he looks like he could kick your ass. He even kind of backtalks Vader, doesn't he? Like, he, 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 he's quite demanding of Vader. It's like, hmm. you know, you, I don't want him dead. He's worth a lot to me. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. Yeah, I like, you know, no one else could talk to you. Say, like, say, Lando couldn't say, hang on, Vader, I'm not liking this. Even Jabba would think twice before that shit. But I think the other thing that uh, kind of makes you think, well, this guy is not to be fucked with, he gets away. He doesn't get punked, at least not in this one. He just gets away with Han, and his plans play out. He's a villain who makes shit work. Even even Vader doesn't get his man at the end of this one, but Boba gets his man in Empire. No, he doesn't. He's given he, His man is handed to him, literally on a silver plate. <laughs> And, yes. and, and and he's got an entire, like, you know, four or five stormtroopers to escort him to his ship, and then he flies away. He doesn't actually do anything. No, I think that pretty much hit the nail on the head. He just sort of stands there a lot. I'm going to put attach a lot of importance to he looks cool. Even though, what's it like, the, the scene where, um, what's it like, you know, I've just done a, a deal with will keep the Empire out of here forever. The doors open, and there's Darth Vader at the end of the table. Yeah. And then, we would be honoured if you would join us. And out comes Boba Fett. You can blatantly tell that Vader said, right, I want you to hide behind that corner because it'll have more impact if it's just me. <laughs> no, no, seriously, get back there. No, no, I don't care how good your gun looks. Stand back there and then jump out and shout surprise or something. <laughs> oh, and you know, probably uh, 50% of, of how cool Boba Fett looks is because you see him stood next to Bosk, IG-88, Dengar, Zuckus, and Forlom. True, true. A bunch of weird insects. This droid who looks inexpressive bummy. even for a droid. A dude who's covered in toilet paper and a big lizard. If another bounty hunter had also had Mandalorian armor, suddenly he's less special. Special editions. We've talked about the original 1997 and 2004 cuts last week, but it's important to look back on how limited our first access was to these films. Let's look at the home formats. 1977, Super 8, the projected home movie segments that Zantiri had saw at his parties. Like I said, segments. Poor Zan had to watch the trench run, and what was the other bit? The opening scene, wasn't it? The opening scene, Zantiri. yeah. It's That's all kids got back in those days. They had to go to the theatres to see it again, or, or like Mike, hide in the theatres to see it repeatedly. 1982, two years after Empire Strikes Back comes out, A New Hope constant linear velocity flipper laser disc. In other words, you had to switch it over halfway through. I'd have been happy enough with that in 1982 if I'd had a laser disc player and it was older than two. Uh, 1984, A New Hope and Empire on VHS and Beta. 1985, A New Hope and Empire on constant angular velocity single-sided laser disc. 1986, Jedi comes out on VHS. At this stage, I really, really wish I had had these on proper video when I was a child. It's possible, actually, thinking about it, that my fixation on the original Star Wars trilogy is due to the fact that I didn't have them. No. 
Leave them to me. I will deal with them myself. 1989, A New Hope and Empire come out on widescreen Laserdisc in the USA. Until that point, they weren't even bloody widescreen. 1990, Jedi comes out on widescreen Laserdisc in the USA. Again, we didn't get them over here. And the trilogy come out on VHS box set. 1992, the trilogy come out on widescreen VHS. So that's what? 15 years between Star Wars being released and Star Wars coming to video in widescreen. 1993, definitive trilogy collection on nine discs, a £13 monster of a CAV Laserdisc box set with bonus materials. 1995, the THX Masters of the videos in widescreen and pan and scan versions, and the CLV Laserdisc. 1997, the special edition trilogy in widescreen, pan and scan, VHS, and widescreen Laserdisc. That was like the first big like re-release where they'd actually changed stuff and obviously tied in with the movie releases 2004 dvd widescreen four disc set plus vhs 2006 two disc limited editions including you know those non-anamorphic versions that we've got yes yeah those are the laser discs from 1993 that's why they're boxed in horribly on the tv screens they haven't been updated for even regular widescreen tvs you know the kind that were available as of the year 2000 and then in 2011 the entire saga on blu-ray including a fourth edit of each movie. That's the one with the blinking Ewoks and the Vader screaming, No! Now onto the differences to The Empire Strikes Back between the various editions. Of the three originals, this one is probably the one that's been altered the least noticeably over the years. Some might say it's because it was pretty much exactly what Lucas wanted the first time around. Let's hear what you guys think of the alterations to the 97 and 04 editions. Uh, new shots of the Wampa. I actually do like those. I, I, you still yeah. the, the first shot where you see its face close up is still the original shot and it mm. still looks a little like the abominable snowman from the Rankin Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer specials he totally does but the part where it shows him actually eating in the cave is is much better than the old version they, didn't they just have like a a soiled Muppet being dragged on a trolley or something well, like that. Yeah, it's it's moving along in, in such a straight line and not moving up and down that it looks like it's just on a rail. It's, it's yeah. pretty terrible, actually. Isn't it filmed it's just to make it look like it's further into the cave as well, so it's not right in front of him and he could die at any second? In all seriousness, yeah, I kind of like it. I mean, I could probably have done without the bit where the Wampert minus his arm goes, <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't bother me that much. Yeah. Right. Then there's nothing for a long time. But in the scene where Darth Vader speaks to the Emperor via hologram, the Emperor is now portrayed by Ian McDermott. In the original film and the 1997 special edition, Clive Revel played the voice of the Emperor. Do you know who played the actual body of the Emperor? Elaine Baker. Wife no, of, uh, the wife of Rick Baker, the guy who worked on Chewbacca's makeup and Planet of the Apes and does all the, the ape stuff. She appeared as Palpatine's physical form in the original theatrical cut of the 97 special edition of the film with superimposed chimpanzee eyes. Watch it again. I would love to hear, I would love to hear Rick Baker pitch this to <laughs> I think he. I think he just showed it and said, does that look cool? Does that look as weird as you wanted it to look? Yeah, that looks good. What is it? It's my wife plus chimpanzee eyes. <clears throat> so yeah, no, now it's Ian McDermott and he's got a few lines of new dialogue that have been added to this scene so that it sort of ties in with the other films a bit better, in which Palpatine informs Vader that their new enemy is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. Do you like or not like it? Um, I, I'm divided on this one. Of, of all the changes that they've made, and you're about to go into the other ones, mm -hmm. this one I thought would be okay, because I, I, 
I like Ian McDermott. He's just brilliant. And he's the, he was one of the redeeming things in the um, in the prequels for me because I loved it every time he was on screen because he actually he knew where that character was going. Mm. He having played it obviously in Jedi, he enjoys that character. I loved in like episode three, like the first time he says like after the mutilation and all that, the first time he says the dark side of the Force. Do you think you've been waiting years? To <laughs> <say that again? laughs> And I thought, yes, yeah, he's going to be able to do it again in the Empire and you know complete the lot and be the Emperor. And oddly, he's a bit flat in this one. The additional dialogue isn't all that great either. It starts to stray into the, you know, the the aspect where George wants to explain everything a little too explicitly to yes. us. Yeah, the original dialogue was fine, was it? The son of Skywalker must not son become a Jedi. Jedi. That's yep. fine. That's all we need to know. Son of Skywalker. Oh, there's another Skywalker. He knew the father. That's fine. But at the same time, that doesn't look or sound anything like the Emperor as we know him. And especially with the prequels, that hammers Ian McDermott in as the Emperor. But I think his performance was powerful enough in Jedi that he deserves to be back in there, entirely regardless of the prequels, if oh, he's yeah, in absolutely. there. Absolutely. It was just disappointing that he wa- it wasn't his best performance. He wasn't all gloaty and stuff. He kind of has to watch himself around Vader, because he's basically saying, go find him and kill him. And Vader's the one who suggests, well, maybe he could be turned. And he's like, um, yeah, good idea. <laughs> lots and lots of new shots of Cloud City, as in the entering into Cloud City, suddenly the, the Falcon shot from above and slightly to an angle, and it looks a bit flatter than it normally is. And then when they're in Cloud City, there's a lot more windows about the place. There's a lot of people walking around, and they, they make the place look a lot bigger, and it seems to be sunset a lot more. I like this. I like this. I know we did the whole most Eisley thing last week, but there's no Jawas falling off dinosaurs here. Yep. I absolutely love it. I do, it. It feels weird now when I watch the 80 version and it's, you know, they fly off towards the city and then it just cuts and it lands. It's like, well, I love the approach to the city. Mm. And, you know, like weaving in between the buildings and there's a lot of things going on. Also, I like, also like the fact that so many of the sets around Lando's palace are basically corridors and there's no windows anywhere yeah. it's like the, the world needs more windows you'd, you'd think they'd have more windows if they if they were in clouds they'd be like I'd probably want to see some clouds about yeah, that yeah you would think so oh bloody clouds wall that window up um, <laughs> I'm impressed I am actually really particularly when you when you watch the original mm. and you see like I, the, for example during the escape there's a section where Lando, Chewie and Leia run around a corner and R2 notices them and follows and that's in a white corridor, perfectly yeah. white corridor beforehand. And then when you watch it back in the 97 version, or the 2004 version, or whatever, it's sunset, it's outside, it's dark, and it's even reflected on the floor. Mm. They really went to town making sure it looked as, it, as if it was always there, not just, oh, look, we've thrown some stuff in. And that I quite like. Yeah, as if it was always there is actually probably one of the best aspects of uh, the special editions. Trying to put in stuff where it's like, hey, check this out now is what pisses me off but yeah. uh, making it like they should have made it in the first place yeah no problem with that either when I saw the 1980 version I noticed there was a little bit of lens flare when uh, the Falcon's making its entry towards Cloud City it's just on the left hand side of its uh, jet engines and then when it goes forward a bit there's some sunshine um, and a little bit of a rainbow just popping off on the side of the screen they got rid of that for the special editions because it was a mistake J.J. Abrams makes a career out of lens flare and little bits yeah, of sunshine because it makes you signal, it feel like you're actually there and actually photographing the Enterprise in space as opposed to a model that lens flare's good Unless you to an extent, to an extent, <laughs> he does overuse it a smidgen in Star Trek, a but, but I, I like it. So lots of new shots in Cloud City. Now, 
This is the Greedo shooting first bit for me. Boba Fett, now voiced by Tamira Morrison rather than Jason Wingreen. I understand why they did it. If I'd watched the prequels and then the originals, I would be glad they did it, but no, 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 no. Okay, I'll, I'll get to that in just a second, because I've got to do the n- next bit, which is just as bad. In the 1997 version, and only the 1997 version, Luke screams when hey. he falls down the shaft. Oh. Really? Yep. Yeah, I was I, I wondered where that scream was, but I was watching the 80 version. I like the scream, I'm happy, but mind you, I grew up with the scream. Ah, uh, dear, dear, dear. You would scream if you were hurtling down a right. chute that was like... 50 million stories tall. Allow me to convince you. I really like the inclusion of McDermott as the Emperor. It makes no real sense to have effectively the concept version play him, and it was a relatively straightforward swap out. What I hate is Luke's scream in 1997 and Boba Fett's new voice in 2004. When Luke falls, it's on purpose, and it's a noble and very significant moment for the character. His screaming takes that away from him and puts that fall in line with Vader's... from Revenge of the Sith. What it lacks is dignity and resolution. Also, do you recognise it? I don't. It's the Emperor falling down the shaft in Jedi. Oh. Do you see how fucked up it is that that sound comes out of Luke's mouth? Yeah, that's that's just wrong. They couldn't even get another scream! They couldn't get Mark Hamill in to do the scream! Mark, could you scream for... They're like, fuck it, that's going to take an afternoon. Let's it's just do exactly it. It's not exactly like Mark was busy here. or anything, was it? Like, Mark, I know you haven't been working for a few years. Um, we right. would hate to scream once. Batman, excuse me. Yeah, he's, he's a pretty skilled voice actor. I've, yeah, I've, I've I think he can scream on cue, actually. I've never watched Batman the Animated I series. do not care for Batman. The original voice of Boba Fett sounded like this. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. In 2004, following Attack of the Clones, they redubbed it to this. What if he doesn't survive? He's worth a lot to me. This is just plain wrong for two reasons. One, Boba Fett is not Jango Fett. Morrison played Jango as an honest man trying to make his way in the galaxy. Sure, he caps his co-workers in the neck if it looks like they might squeal on him, but he's basically a straight shooter. Boba Fett may have the same cloned body, but the mythology that's been built up around him is of a sneaky, calculating and emotionally distant hard man, Dirty Harry in armour. His original voice perfectly exemplifies that underworld drawl that would go hand in hand with keeping up notoriety as a lethal bag of tricks. Number two is that it makes you think of the prequels. McDermott's Emperor was in Return of the Jedi, so you can forget the disappointment of the later films and focus on the man you know should be sitting on that throne. But Morrison's Fett was only in the prequels, and hearing his voice reminded me of the worst Star Wars film, smack bang in the middle of the best. The downside is that if you really think about it, the original Star Wars trilogy are a masterclass in filmmaking technology spread over six or seven years of inspiration, innovation, and improvement. You can literally watch the skills of the filmmakers develop over the course of the three movies. Whatever your feelings of the individual stories are, they do get more visually impressive as time goes on. So, for example, the Battle of the Second Death Star is more impressive than the Battle of the First. But the 97 and 04 editions were all polished up at the same time, lending all 
all those individual years had to offer. They never reached the standards of 1998 or 2005, is what I mean. It homogenizes what was previously an evolution into a collector's edition set that exemplifies the best of technology in a year decades on from their inception. So they may look prettier, but the tale of their creation has changed on screen. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah, part, I mean, part of their genius is is being able to accomplish what they did with what was available. And that, that, that I think, comes through when you watch the originals. Here now, you have a single speech which renders attempting to explain the Force through science, which is something that was half-heartedly prodded at later, entirely redundant. It's not about what you can measure, it's about being aware of the world around you and everybody in it. I can't. It's too big. Size matters not. Look at me. Just me by my size, do you? Hmm? Hmm. And where you should not. For my ally is the Force. And a powerful ally it is. Life creates it. Makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. You must feel the force around you. Here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, and even between the land and the ship. You want the impossible. This was my senior quote in my yearbook in high school. It doesn't need quantifying because when you're a child, you don't need this stuff explained to you. The Force just is. And significantly, it's bigger than all of us. See, it's spiritual here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's I science. have special blood, and that's why yeah. I can do all these magic Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. It's wonderful script writing. It is, yeah. But again, it, it's so much of this is Hamill's response. I'm still just mystified by Yoda. Like, I, I, just, I love him so much. I think Mark Hamill probably um, benefited the most from the actors that he got to work with in Star Wars because he you know to go from being a newbie to being able to pull off the kind of performances he puts out in this and Jedi mm-hmm. he probably also watched the original Star Wars several times and thought to himself whoa I cannot do that again I can do better <laughs> I can so do better than that because I mean like he'd been doing theatre and stuff before then you know? but it, it's obviously a big part of it is how the character developed because if, if you look at him at the beginning of this He's still kind of got that Iowa farm boy thing mm, going on. Mm. He he loses it gradually throughout the course of Empire. Yeah, I mean he was still kind of the big shot on the on Rogue Squadron mm. at that point. He yeah. came out of the the pond the pond that was too small for him at home, mm-hmm. and then he stepped into a world where, yep, I'm a talented pilot, and this is going to be what I'm about. Yeah, and everybody thinks I'm awesome, so I can carry on being awesome and not worrying about changing much. And now he's taking more steps into the world of the Force where he is clueless. 
Unfortunately, folks, this is the power of a really excellent scene. We are left speechless. Mm. See, I, I don't think Yoda wanted to do that. I think he's actually no. quite... He's, he's disappointed that he had to do that, but he knew Luke needed to see something, some evidence. Proof before he believed. That the that Force crazy was there. We saw that in his face, in yeah. his puppet face. He yeah. was disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. Apology accepted. Captain I mean, look, uh, look at how shiny Vader is. I mentioned it before, but like, go back and watch the original Star Wars and look at how matte he is there. His his helmet is a different shape. It's a, it's almost a different character. He's more in control in Empire. He's less petulant. He's less of a caged animal. More of a seething beneath the surface. Arbiter of a malevolent will. I don't get the hero worship of Vader, but I do understand why people would be drawn to his charisma. See, when Vader turns up in Bespin, Lando says, I had no choice, they arrived right before you did. This means Boba Fett must have tracked them to Bespin, gone back, told the Empire, then they all went to Bespin, ahead of the Falcon somehow, light, light speed, so like faster than light speed. Prepare ship for light speed! No, 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 light speed is too slow! Light speed too slow? Yes, we're gonna have to go right to... Ludicrous speed! <gasps> Arranged like, you know, you must let us sit in this room waiting for them, or I might alter the deal. That's confusing, I suppose, actually, if you think about it. What the. Unless maybe if Han made a pit stop. Okay, we'll say that happened. This is a dangerous time for you, when you will be tempted by the dark side of the Force. Yes, yes! To Obi Wan, you listen. The cave. Remember your failure at the cave. But I've learned so much since then. Master Yoda, I promise to return and finish what I've begun. You have my word. It is you and your abilities the Emperor wants. That is why your friends are made to suffer. That's why I have to go. Luke's really, really needed to have a conversation with anyone about the deeper situation he's uh, getting himself into over the past three years. And now suddenly when he's about to go, Yoda and Obi-Wan suddenly really want to talk to him. Again, though, all of their um, their planning has been geared towards keeping Luke out of the reach of the Emperor, and he's about to walk straight into his hands. Mm-hmm. But See why of... they would pull out the big guns to try and stop him going. But they're also making the same mistakes again, because but... it's Luke's compassion that keeps him on... Yeah. Uh, so his compassion there... and his love that keeps him on the light side of things. It's their isolation that they're clinging to. It's the same situation as the guru at the end of uh, Avatar Book 2. Yes. Earth. But then that's another reason why I really like these characters, because they're, although they are sort of, you know, the, the total good and all about the light side of the Force, there is multidimensionality there to them as well. They're not always right. Mm. Mm. But this goes to them, the whole thing of sometimes doing what's right isn't what's easy. And when he comes back, they can still say, I told you so, because you would have had two hands if you'd stuck around. Darth Fed is my father. Once again, information that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. It would have been terrible to tell him at this point, though, because he'd have gone off even more distraught than he is now. Yeah. Yeah. That boy is our last hope. No. There is another. I love how the red light comes on when he says that. Yeah. Also, it seems almost ominous that there's another one. When originally written, that was uh, just something that Lucas had told uh, Kazdan. There's another one. 
and he still wasn't sure who that other one was and uh, for a while it was going to be Han that would have been interesting yeah the Jedi smuggler oh wow I don't know I think Han would be tempted pretty hard by the dark side oh totally which would be a really interesting story to see see I think Han is actually too morally flexible to be much use to the dark side to, to go proper full on dark side you've got to be very very committed to one path mm-hmm. and I don't think Han would ever do that he's too uh, too much the kind of person that looks for the uh, the most appropriate way in any given situation what but, is Lando but, uh, thinking the there time, Han is also on his one path like that's I think that's what he would be rigid about would go I'm going to use this aspect of the force because it's going to help me here he's kind of a looks out for number one guy yeah, he'd use Han it to win gambits and things and uh, to have one over on people I don't know if you noticed but when Lando looked at sort of the dis- dismantled C-3PO he had a real look of something's not quite right yet we know obviously he sold these guys out must have wandered into a stormtrooper patch In 1981 at the Oscars, guess which film won Best Picture? Dot Empire. Ordinary People, a drama film that marked the directorial debut of Robert Redford. The story concerns the disintegration of an upper-middle-class family in Lake Forest, Illinois, following the death of the older son in a boating accident. No disintegrations. Also nominated, The Coal Miner's Daughter, The Elephant Man, Tess, and Raging Bull. Okay, two of those I consider Oscar-worthy. I'm not going to with that. It's obvious now that I think about it. Lucas was being belligerent with the studios and, and had made himself no friends at Fox and with the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild. He was kind of like this bad boy of Hollywood, so they weren't going to give him any awards for it. They got technical awards, which is like the middle finger from Hollywood. One of the things I love about um, Empire is, well, you know, the, the clue is in the name, it's about the Empire. I mean, Alex, you refer to it as a chase movie, and I've never really thought of it in that kind of term. But when you look at it back and like, you watch it again, it is it is a chase movie. The Empire is chasing uh, the you know the Millennium Falcon is chasing Luke, and you start to in this one get a sense of how big the Empire is. Like the villains in A New Hope are very much compressed into just the Death Star and a few stormtroopers and a Star Destroyer elsewhere. But it's it's very focused, very centralised where the threat is coming from, and you know there's a big bad Empire out there, but you don't really get a sense of what it is. In The Empire Strikes Back, there is nowhere the rebels can hide. They go to um, half this you know, dead, barren world, and they still get found. Millennium Falcon is hounded by Vader's personal ship all the way through the film. Mm. And when they finally think they've escaped, the Empire's already there, mm. waiting for them. And it, you do, you genuinely start to, to fear the Empire and fear what this menace is. And you do start to really sympathise with the overall cause of trying to bring them down and bring down the rebels, which is interesting given that the rebels, after Battle of Hoth, the rebels aren't really in this film at all. It's mm. all about the characters. Mm. But you do automatically, you just you just side with the rebels. I mean, Christ, at the end, I swear that last, that closing shot of the um, rebel fleet outside what looks like a nebula, that looks like that's the entire galaxy. 
And you think, yeah, they've had to actually leave the galaxy to escape the Empire for just enough time to fix a hand. You really start to appreciate what the Empire is in this film. And you get to see their actual might on screen. I mean, before you got the Death Star, but you never really get the, the full-scale size of the, of the, of the Emperor's yeah, Rats. exactly. I mean, like and this, you get the Atats, and they're all just advancing, and the the rebels have no choice and no recourse but to run. At that they've stage. got this massive fleet. They've got, and the- they lose as well. They lose the Battle of Hoth. They repel them for just enough time to get away, but they don't win the battle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like something, yeah, like they've got, they've got the Atat walkers. They are completely outgunned in that um, Battle of Hoth. Bit. And, you know, to go back to the music again, there's one absolutely amazing moment that I think actually sums up the whole of The Empire Strikes Back in the, in the, the tone of it. It's the moment where they play the Force theme with such a level of desperation as a, as a single Atat walker is sending the armies of rebel infantry running. And you know, you do get the sense that it sh- you know the empire it, they are running from their empire you know from the empire all the time. They've got the attack walkers. They've got this fleet. This is the one where we see the most star destroyers that aren't focused on a specific military target like the Death Star and protecting the Emperor. They're just out on a standard patrol, and there are you know four or five are you know loads of them. Christ, there's there's a stage where there's three chasing the Millennium Falcon. You really get a sense of how big and how dangerous and how horrible and outnumbered you know the the rebels are it's 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 brilliant there's such a, an underlying tone of fear to this film but the people in the damn thing yeah i mean that's the know. thing the the rebels care about each other the empire are terrified of each other it's yeah. why you know that you are rooting for one side so strongly because you're like everything that these rebels do i want to be part of they care about each other. They're fighting on the on the fringe. They're they're desperate, but they they feel that they've got a good cause. The Empire are travelling in in absolute mortal fear of Vader the whole time, and the Emperor. They're all like, oh, they're watching. They're watching. Can't say anything. Can't do anything. And um, it it's, it just seems so very wrong the way the Empire is run. I I also think that there's something that's really beautiful and simple and elegant about the way. Yoda describes the Force to Luke about how it surrounds us and binds us and how it, uh, you know, we're luminous beings. We're not made of crude matter. There's there's something about that that is a lot more inclusive and helps you kind of buy into it and fill in the blanks yourself mm, mm. as opposed to the, the really kind of pedantic down-to-the-details type of description that Lucas felt necessary to do in the prequels to try to fill in the blanks for us. That's where it completely falls apart, and I, I really prefer the kind of open kind of inclusive description that Yoda gives it it was really powerful I thought in A New Hope he was almost a prototype displaying most of the characteristics he would later be famous for in well lit rooms conversing tersely with bureaucrats in Return of the Jedi, he is Anakin Skywalker, trapped in the suit, wrestling with his conflicted conscience and trying to work out what to do with the shred of soul he has recently rediscovered. In Empire, he is Darth Vader, a mechanical revenant standing in the shadows, striking mortal terror into the hearts of his enemies and allies alike. He stalks the corridors and bridge of his superstar destroyer, dealing out merciless punishment to those who disappoint, and single-mindedly pursuing our heroes across the galaxy. 
In Cloud City, he appears as the spectre of death at the one moment we've breathed a sigh of relief during a period of desperately sought safety for Han, Leia, Chewie and 3PO. He is there to capture, torture and imprison, using Han's agony as a twisted message to Luke, assured that his son's heartfelt attachment to his friends will bring him into Vader's clutches. He even casually freezes our favourite smuggler just at the point when he had developed a sense of ethics, and purely as an experiment to see if the process would contain Luke without killing him. During the duel, he controls the flow of combat entirely, fighting one-handed and mocking young Skywalker, prodding at a rage he hopes is down there. He humiliates and hounds Luke, up to the point where his son actually scores a lucky hit, which causes Vader to lash out and dismember the boy. His aim is to break Luke down until there is nothing left but burning desire to live at any cost, the same desire that kept Anakin alive just long enough to be put in the Vader suit. His short-sightedness leads him to believe Luke would join him against the Emperor through fear, arrogance, greed and self-preservation. Luke, however, is ten times the man his father was, and the 1980 and 2004 cut after having his entire world shattered and the shining knight that could have been his father rendered into the shadow of his hated enemy, Luke calmly accepts oblivion, dropping into the abyss in a gesture of self-sacrifice rather than commit any act which would harm the innocent. This one move on Luke's part takes the wind out of Vader's sails. Up to that point, he had visions of Imperial mastery with his dutiful son and apprentice by his side, possibly the only being he would accept as his eventual destructor and successor. Luke does what he could not, and this leads to the ghost of Anakin Skywalker slowly creeping into Vader's being, a better man who, while flawed, wanted to do what was right once upon a time. It is the perfect beginning of the end to the reign of blackness that Vader has led for 22 years in a character arc that, while nearly ruined altogether by the abysmal prequels, still gives you the most complex and interesting story of the saga. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate on a diplomatic mission to Alderaan. You are part of the Rebel Alliance and a traitor. Take her away! You can't do this. I feel the conflict within you. Let go of your hate. It is too late for me, son. They're like different characters. Yeah. Yeah. The One of the things, you know, you mentioned what a badass he is in this movie, and one of the things that totally struck me, one of my favorite scenes in the movie actually is the carbon freezing chamber because there's so much emotion welled up in there. Mm. I love the art direction of it. The, the complementary blue and orange color scheme mm. looks fantastic. Um, and the whole sequence... Vader's breath is like the underpinning audio throughout the entire thing, even as Leia is proclaiming her love for Han. You can hear him breathing in the background, and there's just something so sinister and creepy about that the whole time that it's really effective. Well, even musically, I mean, you know, you go that that's the key point where the Han and Leia theme is just at its biggest mm, when yep. the two of them kiss. He's put down this that dramatic moment as he goes down and then as he's frozen. And as the claw comes in and reaches in for the thing, all you hear is the Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme tune, triumphant. Mm. And it is, it is just incredible. I mean, we talked last week about um, the actor, the acting in the in the original trilogy being a bit hammy. Chewbacca was, it, I think, is quite good you know you, he, he, although he only makes noises mm. you can tell and when he just roars yeah as, as the uh, what's it, as the mechanism comes down and traps Han in the freezing chamber mm. and he screams it's just it's that's still powerful on its own 
Isn't there even a shot where, like, you just, over the smoke, you just see Darth Vader's emotionless mask? Yeah, he looks like a black ghoul in, in, in the steam. And it's, it's got a lot of imagery of hell, even though it's in the clouds. Yeah. It's, it's this combination of a sort of uh, mechanical industrial revolution, space age, yet medieval depiction of heaven and hell combined. Chewie! Chewie, this won't help me! Hey! Save your strength. There'll be another time. The princess... You have to take care of her. You hear me? Huh? I love you. I know. He really annoys Vader when he clips him on the shoulder here. He's like, right, enough of this crap. And then, boom! It happens so fast, and they keep this camera rolling on it for that whole, what, two seconds. Yeah, his hand's spiraling away. Why is there not a hand there? Cast your mind back to Attack of the Clones. I, I haven't really mentioned it, but remember that bit where Anakin gets his entire forearm lopped off by Darth Tyrannus? Barely registered it. It barely registers. It doesn't bother him. He must show, like, Gaiden Christensen is an actor, right? Like, that is his profession. He would have asked George, am I in, in terrible pain like like Luke was at this oh, point? And George's like, no, no, he's, uh, you know, he's a professional, he's a Jedi, uh, he kind of deals with this stuff every day. No, I, I really think that I would be bothered by this, George. If I lost my arm across my bicep, I feel like maybe, hmm. Would he scream? But no, he just looks at Obi-Wan in a kind of a, right, together should, again, right? We should right? be talking about Sorry. Christensen for this bit. Good point. Good point. No. I am your father. Right, can everyone please agree to stop misquoting that as Luke, I am your father. It's no, I am your father. No. Do you know who the three people that knew what the line really was were on the day of shooting? Uh, Irvin Kirshner, uh, Mark Hamill, Hamill. and um, James L. Jones. James L. Jones? Mm-hmm. Was he actually there on the day of filming? Because obviously, I don't think Prowse he was. Came. He wasn't, but Prowse was told it was Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan, killed, Obi-Wan your killed your father. father yeah. So, uh, Mike, you had a unifying theory on Empire. Uh, not so much a theory, just kind of, uh, you know, what it means to me, which I, I admit is probably going to seem a little bit absurd, so I can understand eye rolls and scoffs as I go through this. But for a kid who was 10 years old seeing this, whose only entertainment options had been things like um, Saturday morning cartoons and, and Disney, The Empire Strikes Back was a pretty huge revelation for me because you know even after seeing a new hope it ended with the destruction of the death star everybody's smiling everybody gets a medal except Chewie. and you know watching empire as a kid when vader told luke he was his father um i almost felt like luke did i was totally in denial even though deep down i fucking knew it was true and you know in that way the movie taught me some pretty powerful life lessons that my parents, you know, they hadn't bothered to burden me with yet because I was so young. Uh, things like the universe is cruel or at the very best, it's completely dispassionate. Bad things happen to good people and sometimes the bad guys win. So, you know, in other words, uh, Empire made me the bitter, cynical bastard I am today and I'm immensely thankful for it. And then there's the end that fantastic closer that must have left K 
kids in 1980 crying and bewildered. No medal ceremony, no party, no wedding. Chewie and Lando depart on a scouting mission that may not pay off. Luke is damaged and trying his best to heal. Leia just realized that she loves a man who she may never see again. And the ragtag fleet they've rejoined seems pitifully unequipped to take on the might of the Empire that's hounded and ravaged them throughout the past two episodes. I think it was the first film that I ever saw that essentially ends on a cliffhanger. I mean, every, anything I'd watched up until that point was generally like Disney films and, and, and standalone movies that were their own self-contained stories. And to have, like you said, to have this... this film where thing, everything's not resolved where there's obviously the end of Star Wars A New Hope there's not, you know, everything's not resolved the Empire's still out there, but here to have like small personal stories and therefore the ones that are most important to us as a viewer to, to have those not resolved and want to know what's going on. It was painful but it was painful in the most inexplicably satisfying way you can imagine you know, especially it was just something that I had never experienced before you get to the end of the movie and it's like what they lost and Han has been taken away and I have no idea what's going to happen next I, there was something that was really exciting about that because I had never seen anything like it before but our fears and hurt are allayed somewhat by Luke embracing Leia offering some tiny comfort at the darkest of times we know that whether or not they can get Han back and depose the Empire that they have friends that they have plans and that they have each other a tantalizing hint at the even stronger bond that exists between them and we will be back next week for the conclusion to the saga. You won't have to wait three years, folks. Return of the Jedi, next week. I've been Alex Young. I've been Neil Taylor. I've been James Batchelor. I continue to be Mike Phillips. And may the Force be with you.